Well, it's lovely uh, to have been with you this weekend. We've really enjoyed our time catching up with uh, old friends and making new ones. Um, and uh, it's a lovely venue uh, to come to. And it does. Uh, and thank you for. We've enjoyed the sunshine as well. It's been it's been good to be here. And uh, and welcome, Pathfinders, to this final session. I hope you've enjoyed uh, looking at the Book of Ruth in your group. And uh, as you join us, I hope you get. Uh, and, uh, and here's something which is helpful in this final session as well. The, it is a wonderful story, is the book of Ruth. Um, the best stories are, are more like a, a road uh, through the Lake District than they are like a trip down a motorway. Instead of being direct and straight and quick, they are, there's twists and there's turns, there's... Is that really going to happen? Is that going to happen? There, there is uh, incidents which raise suspense. But like a good road, a good story will get you to your destination in the end. There will be a resolution. And that's true in the book of Ruth. And the story began with uh, bitterness and emptiness in the life of Naomi. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. The bottom's fallen out of her world. But at the end of chapter 4, after a number of twists and turns, Naomi's happy and she's full. There's been a resolution. She and Ruth have been redeemed. There is a redeemer. Now, the big question in the book is, who is the Redeemer? You see, there's ambiguity in this chapter as to who the Redeemer actually is. And that ambiguity is not only the key to understanding this chapter, it's the key to understanding the book of Ruth. In fact, it's the key to understanding the Bible and the key to understanding your life as well. You see... The reason there's such an ambiguity is because there isn't just one redeemer in this final chapter, but three redeemers. And we're going to look at each of those redeemers to see something about what redemption actually involves. And, and, and we will see something about the ultimate redeemer, Jesus Christ himself. You see, in this chapter, we see the first redeemer, the full redeemer. And the final redeemer. Three redeemers. The first redeemer, the full redeemer, and the final redeemer. So first of all, the first redeemer. Verse 1 begins like this. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Now I said yesterday that the word uh, redeemer, here in verse 1, is the word goel. Um, and it, re it refers to the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament who was able to buy back a piece of land for his relatives who had become impoverished. You see, that's what redemption means. To redeem means to buy back, to set free at the paying of a price. And Naomi and Ruth, they're really poor, so Naomi is selling the right to use her land and profit from her land. And, and a kinsman redeemer, a close member of the family, can come and do that. It would keep the land within the family. 
Now, Boaz, as we know, is one of the redeemers. He wants to redeem the land and he wants to marry Ruth. But there is a complication in the story. There is a nearer redeemer than Boaz. And if there was some music in the film at this point, the music would be ramped up to create suspension. Da, da, da. What is going to happen? Is Boaz going to get his girl? Is there going to be a happy ending? Now, Boaz isn't one to hang around. The morning after the threshing floor, he goes to the city gate. Now, the city gate in those days was the it was the courtroom and the town hall wrapped into one. It was, it was where business and judicial and legal decisions were made. As Boaz sits down, we're told, behold, the Redeemer appears that Boaz had been talking about. It just so happens as he sat down that the other Redeemer comes along. What a coincidence. We know there aren't any coincidences. God wants to get this sorted. Boaz calls him over. He says to him, turn aside, friend. Sit down here in the ESV. He's called friend. But in the Hebrew, he's called Ploni Amoni, which if we were to literally translate it would be Mr. So-and-so. Or, yeah, you know, come here, chappy. Um, it, He's, he's not named in this chapter. We never learn his name at all. Boaz calls over the ten elders as witnesses. He begins to discuss uh, the redemption of the land. Um, you know, back in chapter one, we are, um, there are two women, Ruth and Orpah, who, who have a costly choice to make. And now here, at the end of the book, there are two men with also a costly choice to make and we're meant to feel the tension rise as this redeemer weighs up his decision to to buy the land Boaz explains the situation in verses three and four lays it all out to him and then shock of shocks the answer we do not want the redeemer says i will redeem it now this isn't meant to happen it's not part of our plan it's not part of boaz's plan why does Boaz have to be such a stickler for the law and for doing the right thing? Well, Boaz is a stickler for the law, but Boaz is also a shrewd businessman. <laughs> Boaz, after discussing the land and after the Redeemer has said, I will redeem the land, Boaz plays another card. He says, well, when you get the land, he says, on the day you buy the field from the hands of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. In other words, Boaz says, great, you want to redeem the land, but actually you're going to acquire a wife, Ruth the Moabitess, this foreigner, enemy of Israel. And she brings a mother-in-law in tow. Now, legally, I don't think the man had to marry Ruth. But the way Boaz puts it publicly, in front of all the elders, 
this guy would lose face badly in the community if he didn't do that. You see, the man was happy to, and, and he says he's not going to do it. You see, the man was happy to profit and to help Ruth and Naomi when it looked like he would, he would gain something for himself, something that would be to his advantage, but this is no different. You know, he's going to have to marry a, a foreigner. He's got a mother-in-law. The land will belong to the heir. And who knows, Ruth and Naomi might bleed him dry from all his money. He's not willing to do that. He's happy to redeem while he was going to gain. But if it's going to cost him, he's not up for it. And so he says that. He says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So he passes over the right of redemption to Boaz. And there is this uh, shoe-taking-off ceremony, which even the writer uh, didn't really know much about in his day. Yeah, I suppose it would be a bit like signing a contract. Um, Boaz redeems everything that belonged to Elimelech. There's an interracial marriage, which perhaps for Boaz wasn't that big a deal because... Boaz's mother was Rahab the prostitute from Jericho. He's already experienced interracial marriage. All his wealth becomes Ruth's and Naomi's, and all Naomi's and Ruth's debts become his. And the people celebrate and bless Boaz. See, Boaz is a wonderful redeemer. You know, he's happy to risk everything that he has in order to redeem. And he acts so selflessly. He acts quickly. He wisely, faithfully, sacrificially. He shoulders the obligations that come his way. Even if it costs him to do so. See that's what redemption involves. Redemption is always costly. If you want to redeem something. You've got to pay if you want to redeem your car after a crash, you've got to pay to get it mended. If you want to redeem a relationship after an argument, a relationship that's broken down, you've got to say sorry. And you've got to forgive. And it's costly to do that. It's painful to do that. Redemption is always costly. And the same is true with God. You know, we've all turned our backs on God. Our relationship with him is broken. Now it's going to cost God to forgive us and to mend those broken relationships. God can't just click his fingers. He can't just brush sin under the carpet and say it doesn't matter. He can't play fast and loose with sin. A price needs to be paid. To redeem us from our sin. To redeem our relationship. And Jesus has come and paid that price. You see in this story. Boaz was willing to risk his inheritance. In order to redeem Ruth and Naomi. Jesus gave up his inheritance. To redeem you and me. He came from heaven to earth. He, he left his home in heaven. He left his glory and came to earth. He lived a life of poverty, lived a life of homelessness, and then he died on a cross. And he died on a cross to pay for your sins. 
to redeem your life so you can be forgiven and be brought back to God again, to be brought back into relationship with God. He took our sins and our sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Redemption is costly. It always involves paying the price to redeem. There's a second thing I want us to see about redemption. We see the first redeemer, but we also see the full redeemer. You see, there's a second redeemer here in chapter 4. The book of Ruth doesn't finish at verse 12, but at verse 22. See, Boaz is a redeemer and a wonderful redeemer, willing to pay the price, willing to bear the cost to redeem Ruth. But Naomi hasn't yet been fully redeemed. Her life is still empty. Yes, Ruth has got a husband now and there's a land there, but Ruth's life, uh, Naomi's life is still empty. So who is her redeemer? Well, it says this in verse 14. The women say to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Who redeems Naomi? Who's Naomi's redeemer? Well, it's Obed. It's her grandson. And how does he redeem her? Well, on a basic level, he, he fills her life up. He, he restores her life and, and nourishes her in old age. You know, if you're a grandson here this morning, there's some sort of ministry that grandsons have with grandmothers where they can give their grandmothers life and nourish them in their old age and serve them in the last few years. And that's what Obed does. Obed's pictured here in Naomi's arms. He's a handful for his grandmother, whose hands were once empty. God does all things well. He's kind to Naomi. You know, Naomi is one of the, a series of, of barren women in the Bible who have offspring. You know, it's a barren woman who gives birth to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The blessing of a grandson is real for Naomi, and it fills her life, but it doesn't replace what she's lost. You know, she's lost her husband. Her sons are still dead. She still felt the pain of that, and still feels the pain of that. Now, nothing can take their place, even if she has a grandson who nourishes her and encourages her. You know, there is an incompleteness to our lives in this world. You know, just because God works all things out for our good and will work out all things for our good, it doesn't mean that everything is going to come together in our lifetime. 
it doesn't mean we're going to experience a happy ending in the here and now. Well, Obed redeems Naomi's life on a physical level, but on a deeper level, Obed redeems Naomi's life. Because he gives her a name. To, to have a name is to be somebody. To have no name is to be a nobody. Naomi returns to Bethlehem nameless. You know, in Israel at that time, a woman's name was attached to her husband and to her sons. Her, her name and her identity was bound up with theirs. And so no husband and no sons means no name. And so she is insignificant when she returns to Bethlehem. She is a nobody. And she will die a nobody. The name of her family will come to an end. And so the reason it was important for Ruth to marry and to have a child was in order to perpetuate the name of the dead. That's what we're told in verse 10. To perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You see, in many ways, this is the biggest problem in the book of Ruth. The biggest problem in the book of Ruth is not how can Ruth get a husband, but how can Elimelech's name not be blotted out from the people of God? How can Elimelech's name and his family not be forgotten? And that's why the, the people pray about Ruth in verse 11. May the Lord... Make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. See, they're saying just as Rachel and Leah were used by God to build up the house of Israel, just as another foreign widow, Tamar, gave birth to a son, Perez, who helped build up the tribe of Judah. So they pray that Ruth would have a son who would continue the name of Elimelech. You see, through her, one of the interesting things is through her ten years of marriage to Marlon, Ruth was childless. But the good news at the end of this book is that God gives her a son. She gives birth to Obed. He's going to have a son, Jesse. He's going to have a son, David. The name of Elimelech will not be forgotten. And that's got huge implications, not only for Elimelech and his family, but also for all the other characters who are connected. Boaz. His name's not forgotten as he redeems Ruth and Naomi. The other redeemer... His name's blotted out. He's, he's a nameless guy. His name's not forgotten. You know, to have your name forgotten, to have your name blotted out is an awful thing. You're a nobody. Then verse 15, the women tell Naomi that Ruth, her daughter-in-law, is more to her than seven sons. You know, that's a big statement. Seven's the perfect number. And back in 
the ancient world, sons were better than daughters. So to be better than the perfect family is huge. And what makes Ruth better than a perfect family? Because her love and faithfulness have enabled the childless widow Naomi to have a name again. Naomi's life's still messed up. Her family's still broken. She's still a widow. She's still buried her sons. But she has a name. She's been redeemed. A name that's not going to be forgotten. A name that's not going to be blotted out. You see, redemption is more than just having your sins dealt with. It's, it's about being provided with a name. You know, when you become a Christian, you are born again. The Holy Spirit comes into your life and changes you. You become a new person. You know, the old has gone, the new has come. And, and you begin a new relationship with God. God is now your father. You're his you're his child, you're his son, you're his daughter, you're adopted into his family. You've got a new identity, you've got a new name. You know, so often in life we make decisions and, and we do things to get a name for ourselves. So that when we come to die, thousands of people will attend our funeral because, and, and say at the, our funeral, they were such a great guy. They were such a wonderful woman. We will never forget them. And they'll write something nice on our headstone, like our loving father, um, our, our wonderful wife. So we work hard to have a good family, to be successful in our work, to earn lots of money, uh, to get lots of friends, to have a nice character, to do lots of things for charity, so that we can get ourselves a name. Yet life moves on. Names are forgotten. You know, how many of you know the names of your great-grandparents? How many of you know the names of the Prime Ministers of England last century? How many of you can name all the players in the Euro 1996 football team, England football team? You know, life moves on. Names are forgotten. You know, if you seek to have a name here on earth... That name won't last, even if it's written on a board at school, or at work, or on a little cup which you keep in your cabinet. But to be called a child of God is to have a name that will never be forgotten, that will last forever. See, once you are a son or a daughter of God, you are a son and daughter forever. As C.S. Lewis famously said, in uh, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, once a son or daughter of Narnia, always a son or daughter of Narnia. Your name will never be forgotten. It will never be blotted out. It can never be blotted out because your name is written on the palm of Jesus' hands. Your name is hidden in his heart. And you can know that while in heaven he stands, no power can force you to depart. And so it doesn't really matter what other people think of you in your life. It doesn't really matter what you think of yourself. What matters is what God thinks of you. And if you are a Christian, you are a child of God. That's what he thinks of you. He's given you a name. A name that will last forever. 
See, that's why Jesus Christ went to the cross. To redeem you, not only by paying the price for your sins, but to redeem you by giving you a name, by making you a somebody. See, he was cut off on the cross so you can be brought in. He was blotted out so you could have a name forever. He became a nobody so you could be a somebody with God. See, Jesus Christ is the ultimate redeemer. And to as many, John says in John chapter 1, to as many as receive him, to those who believe in his name, he will give the right to become children of God. You see here that redemption involves having a name, but there's something else about redemption that I want us to see. Because there's not just two redeemers here in this chapter, but three redeemers. We have here a final redeemer. And that final redeemer is here in verses 18 to 22. Verse 18 begins the little conclusion at the end of the book. Just as verses 1 to 5 in chapter 1 were the introduction, these are now the conclusion. And this is how it finishes. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Narshan. Narshan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Ten generations of the people of Judah. Now these final words are so important. They, uh, on the surface they just seem like an appendix, or just a list of names. But actually they provide us with the punchline to the whole story. See, the final name of the list is David. And he's the final redeemer of the book. He's the greatest of these three redeemers. Here in chapter 4, you see, he doesn't just redeem a person, like Boaz does. He doesn't just redeem a family, like Obed does. But he redeems a nation, a people, the people of God. See, Ruth and Naomi here are involved in something big. Unknown to them, their family line would be the greatest in Israel they're going to be the ancestors of King David himself you know God is doing something through these women and through this family and through this story beyond the lifetime of these main characters that's the sort of thing God does God often does many things beyond what the naked eye can see the explanation for much of your life lies beyond your life. And you and I may never see what God is actually doing. You see, God wants to touch the lives of other people through you and through me. By what we do, by what we say, our lives are part of something bigger. Something that, that God is doing long after we are gone. Now this is why life can appear so messy to us and so frustrating at times because we can't see the full picture. You know, the tapestry of our lives will always be incomplete. It's only ever going to be complete beyond our lifetime. The jigsaw puzzle will always be unfinished. It will be finished one day, but 
we won't see it in our lifetime. You know, the answer to our prayers is often found after we die. You know, God wants to be doing things in us and through us to bless people that we will never come across. He has got bigger plans than we have. He can do far more than we can ever ask or imagine. He wants to redeem the lives of men and women who aren't yet born. And he wants to do it through us. See, this is why William Cowper, who wrote that hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, he got it. That's why he writes in that hymn, Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, God treasures up his grand designs and works his sovereign will. Deep in unfathomable minds, in places that we could never imagine, that we will never come across. God is doing something great and doing something wonderful. And he's doing that through your life and mine. But this short genealogy here is incomplete. This family tree, you see, continues. You know it reappears in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 1. And it ends not with David, but with David's great, great, great grandson, Jesus Christ himself. See, he is the ultimate king and he is the ultimate redeemer. And like David, he would be born in Bethlehem. And like David, he would redeem God's people. He will redeem them from their enemies. He will give them a home forever and forever. You see, there is coming a day when Jesus Christ will redeem this world. Where he will restore all things. He is the ultimate redeemer. You see, there is coming a new world. A world which will be full of love and full of joy and full of peace. A world without broken relationships where there will be harmony and unity. It will be a world without pain and without tears and without suffering and without sickness and without decay and without death. Those former things will have gone away. All things will have become new. Everything bad will be removed. And everything sad will become untrue. In fact, everything that we experience now in our sadness and our grief will somehow be turned in on itself and be turned back for good. You see, Jesus is the ultimate redeemer and the restorer of this world and the restorer of our lives. He is going to restore them and make them complete. That jigsaw puzzle will be finished. That tapestry will be complete one day. All the sadness we experience will be changed. Something so great is going to happen that will heal every wounded heart, that will comfort every longing soul. He will restore to you the life that you have lost and more besides. You see, that is what God is doing in our lives and we can see it. In the story of the book of Ruth. You see, what is God doing in the book of Ruth? God is providing for these women. Showering them with his loving kindness. Teaching them what it is to trust him. And redeeming their lives. And as we look at this book of Ruth and, and look at this story, we can see that is what God wants to do in our lives as well. And that's what he will do. If you, come, if you take refuge under the shelter 
of his wings, then he will redeem your life as well. And he wants you to know that and to be able to sing about it. That writer I mentioned, William Cowper, who wrote that wonderful hymn, wrote another hymn which you may have come across. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And then he says, Ever since the day I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. May we all make redeeming love the theme of our life. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your redeeming love. We thank you for this wonderful story which demonstrates your redeeming love and how we can see that you care so much for two poor widows that you will redeem their lives. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to believe and see that you want to redeem our lives as well. And in the mess and in the incompleteness of our lives, help us to trust you, to rest in your loving kindness, to allow your providence to guide us and to bring us home. And may we always sing on our journey home about your redeeming love to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.